Hi, everyone. Raghu, I'm back with Mind Rolling. And uh, boy, I'm really happy to have Elizabeth Mathis Namgal on the show, uh, who I thought, okay, I don't, I've never, we, we just went, did you, have we met before? And it turns out we have, and, and very strangely, a long time ago, uh, through family. So it's really kind of wonderful to, to meet you. And um, this is a, now I, I do a lot of podcasts and I talk to a lot of people and, oh, just say hi. I forgot. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Elizabeth. So, um, yeah, so uh, this is a, and this happens to me because I do so many of these podcasts and I do some of them with people who have written books and so on. So that's a lot of books to be reading completely from week to week, along with everything else I like to do. So I have become a really great speed reader. And just picking out the things that are of interest to me to have a chat about. I couldn't do it with this book. Okay, Elizabeth? Okay. Why? <laughs> because every page or two has such a profound, uh, insightful um, representation of, of the teachings and certainly the teachings that you're talking about in this book. But okay, we're wetting everybody's appetite. Um, I... But the first thing you have to do is give us a little bit of your journey. I do talk to people when I when I first meet them and go, okay, what was that thing that appeared out of nowhere? You might have been, for me, I was eight or nine years old and had some absorption experience. And um, what was that thing that went, you know, that finally you could go, wait a minute, this, I am not that thing I keep thinking I am. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> I, I think also um, I had an awareness when I was a child of an experience, I guess you can say an experience of awe or, you know, when you're a, when you're a young person, you don't put words to it, but you notice it. Um, and there was a sense of stepping out of my ordinary, I don't know, habitual mind and experiencing kind of a magical aspect of my own mind in the world that it perceived. And, um, I was always very aware of it and very attracted to it. And I was attracted to spiritual paths of all kinds, churches and I just every, everywhere, nature and music inspired it. But I was also very aware of suffering and I had a lot of questions about these two very opposing experiences. And so I just, I just followed that. I, I, I just became curious throughout my whole life and I, explored a lot of things and a lot of teachers and a lot of paths and asked a lot of questions and you know finally I met my teacher Zigar Kongfrabishu when I was quite young but he was quite young too um, in Nepal mm. he's, a, he's a Tibetan Buddhist teacher yeah um, but you know in in the book it must tell this experience of just just the idea of of you were walking alone to church uh, from your house to light candles that 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 kind of says a lot about what I just mentioned actually yeah I, I just was attracted to I felt there was something bigger and I felt a sense of maybe humility and awe and I still think that's the best part of my mind and I also admire that aspect in other people when it arises it's very beautiful yeah 
but you say in, in here, um, I intuitively, intuitively understood that this was something that arose deep within the nature of my being, and it didn't occur to me to name it. And uh, I can relate with that similarly, uh, had that kind. And then, of course, we have nothing in our culture that allows for that, for a support to be for that. In fact, just the opposite, you're crazy, you can go to your room, kind <laughs> of a thing. Uh, so uh, here, I'll just let me read this one thing, Elizabeth. Whether as a child or as an adult, we are all susceptible to moments when we emerge from our habitual reality. In those moments, we glimpse the magnificence of the world around us. And yet as we grow into our lives, we are also susceptible to a world that others define for us, right? And so oh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this movie we just have out, had out in the theaters of, with Ramdas called Becoming Nobody. And and a lot of, uh, I think you'd like it actually. I'm writing yeah. it right now. <laughs> Be Becoming Nobody. And, you know, he, he um, talks about the what you're talking about here and what we do talk a lot about, which is the the attachment to roles and identities and patterns and um, and that becomes the little mini me guy. Sharon <laughs> Sharon calls it hers is called Lucy. She <laughs> refers to anything that's a little wacky. Yeah. <laughs> Lucy, is that what you're up to? Yeah. <laughs> and um so, yeah, he, it, it, it really, so the film represents a journey from that to, uh, at one point he says in the picture, and this is from all these incredible uh, tapes of video and audio that we have from this uh, decades of him teaching. And, and it was just like, when, it, when is what's good for you enough? Or when is it good for me? It's enough. You know, when is what do I want? Okay, already. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you know, already. when do you get to that point? And then you see that thinking about others or service, whatever, however which way you want to put it, is the antidote to that somebody. Yes, so, Great joy. Great you know. joy. Yeah. Great liberation, right? Yeah. Um, so, well, essentially, though, actually, you've, here's another thing you must tell. Just your meeting with Kongtrul uh, Rinpoche, who became your teacher. Why don't you just talk about? Because that, that that was an except. That was uh, probably a, a tremendous uh, highlight in terms of the transformation your life took. Right. Yeah. Do you, do you want me to say what I wrote in the book? Or? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. Just tell it extemporaneously, just okay. from where you are now, what happened, and how you felt when it happened. Yeah. Well, you know, eventually on my search, um, I was I went to uh, Nepal um, in the guise of studying anthropology. I got a grant to go, and I ended up spending a couple of years in Nepal and India there. Uh, doing research, but I was really trying to understand these very questions that I talked about um, before. And um, I realized that, you know, I was at this point where I was going to have to decide what I might do with my life or what direction I'd go in. So I was getting my uh, undergraduate, my bachelor's, and um, I realized I really needed a teacher. So I really was serious about finding one. 
And I looked and I, you know, talked to many great lamas uh, in, in Nepal and India, mostly in the Tibetan tradition. For some reason, I was quite attracted to that. And um, I went up to Nagi Gompa to meet Tuku Organ Rumche, who lived up in a nunnery. He's a wonderful master. I think I can see by your expression, you, you've met him. Uh, he's a tremendous. No, yeah. no, not met him, but uh, know of him and have his books and uh yeah, he, yeah, he has he's the most exalted family that ever lived or something, right? All his sons, Mingyur, Tsogni, all the... Yeah, tremendous, beautiful family. And um, Anyways, during that time, Digor Hong Krumbache was 21 years old. I was 23. was doing retreat there. And um, he just looked like a very ordinary person. And um, at some point, I had to sit outside and you know follow the instructions that Tukul Organ Rinpoche gave us. Um, and I was sitting outside and he came over and we just started to talk a little bit. And I just started to ask him my questions and he responded with so much depth and in a way that I could really relate to. And I thought to myself, I wish I could meet a teacher just like this. because so I didn't know who he was. And we started to spend some time together. And in a week or two, somebody said, do you know who that is? That's Zigo Kong Kurumache. So he was very young. It's it's very interesting that my teacher showed up at such very you know, at twenty-one years old. But he was always very deep, very profound. And then I've as I've, you know, we've grown older together, I've watched him just blossom and mature and it's been thirty-five years or so now. A tremendous teacher. Very elegant and somewhat wrathful. Kind of oh. fierce. That loving but fierce quality about him. But th- that thing that happened to you, describe that, the triangle. Oh, okay. You want me to describe the triangle. Okay. So uh, early on in our, uh, when I, right after I met him, uh, we went, we used to walk a lot, walk and talk about the Dharma. And, you know, I was so fresh during that time, just open and kind of naive also. And uh, we went up to this uh, village called Dulika and we're sitting on a mountaintop. And we're looking down at the Kathmandu Valley. Um, and he turned to me and he asked me the most curious thing. So he put his two index fingers together. So it looked like the roof of a house, you know. Mm. He asked me, Lizzie, is this one or is this two? And I thought, what kind of, like, was it, I wondered if it was a trick question because it was so out of the blue. And I said, well, you can't say the shape, um, that, that roof shape. It's like an open triangle, just two fingers. Um, you can't say it's one because it's uh, two fingers. It has two parts, but you can't say it's two because it creates one shape. And you can't say they're the same thing, but you can't say they're separate either. So he got extremely excited and said, good, good. And I had no idea why it was good. But what, mm-hmm. he was, you know, what this had to do with the spiritual awakening, and, it took me, and I became very curious. And over the years, um, I began to understand that this had to do with the Buddha's uh, teachings on dependent arising or interdependence. And that became a, a focus for my, I don't know that these teachings have been just burning in me ever since. And mm. it's very important to my own, um, you know, development as a student. So this meeting with uh, this Rinpoche was profound in many ways for you in your life. I mean, that yeah. was kind of the beginning and, but um, what what happened following that? Well, <laughs> we ended up getting married. <laughs> okay. 
Well, that's not nothing. <laughs> and I just, um, I really, first and foremost, I've always been a student. That's mm -hmm. really what's been important to me. And um, the Dharma is probably both of our first love. And, um, you know, I just began to study and do a lot of practice. And um, I began to explore what this whole, this kind of gesture that he made to me meant. Um, and, you know, I studied the teachings of the Buddha Dharma, particularly the, the middle way teachings. That's what those have to do. The teachings on the middle way really explain that gesture. So I started to study those deeply. And, you know, my the, the spiritual path is a, a tough and gritty thing. And I encountered, I had a lot of adventures, which I'm still having. <laughs> and I... <Yeah. laughs> You had a little bit of an advantage. Come on, you you have your teacher by your side. Yeah, that's that's a, is a great great blessing, and it also presents you know yeah. life challenges. I bet I can't yeah. even imagine. Yeah, it's one. It's one, and I when I say challenges, I mean that with a full heart. Hmm. I welcome. Yeah. Hmm. I welcome them. Hmm. All right, so uh, then we do have to explain. How do we get, this is such a, it can be a very difficult uh, subject for a layperson or, or non-Buddhist, but into Hinduism or whatever it is. They have a difficult time with we, I can say we, although I have spent some time around it, particularly because we, we hang out with all these Buddhists all the time at our retreats yeah. in Maui, and we have had, been their friend for decades, um, but dependent origination in the most practical whatever examples can be given that uh, and you give them in the book by the way so mm -hmm. yeah the whole book is almost a big series of examples yeah. <laughs> in some ways yeah so you want me to explain that oh yeah okay it, it starts out in a kind of sounding a bit cryptic but i think it's actually very simple so on the, on the dawn of his awakening, the Buddha had an insight, and he expressed it in a, a, a very famous phrase uh, that people know in the Buddhist world. He said, this being, B-E-I-N-G, that becomes. From the arising of this, that arises. This not being, that becomes not. From the cessation of this, that ceases. Mm. And, and I, I know I'm going to have to explain this. Like I said, it is a little bit cryptic when you first hear it, but it's very essential to everything the Buddha taught from the beginning of the path, even all the way through the Vajrayana in so many ways. So basically what he's talking about is there's many ways to look at it, but cause and effect. For example, if you plant a seed, you get a sprout. You know, if you if you plant a banana seed, you won't get an apple tree. You'll get a banana tree. Like cause and effect works. So, in in um, just a very basic way, you know how we live our life affects. You know, the res we'll see the results if we're clinging to the self and we're grasping and rejecting and you know really self-focused then we're going to experience more suffering if we're more open and, and service oriented for example we'll experience so much more liberation and freedom and meaning in our life so it could be just looked at in that simple way um, as this understanding developed in the dharma it also means that it all one good translation for dependent arising is just a simple phrase we always use it all depends it all depends. Like, 
you know, if you ask somebody what faith looks like or what they think the world, the world is like, everyone will say something different because they're seeing things in a different way. Um, mean the meaning and characteristics and function of anything um, all exists in a particular context. So, for example, I don't know. I like the example of humor. You know, uh, you know, I like Dave Chappelle. His funny stand-up comic. Yeah, <laughs> outrageous. That Brilliant. Really, you know, when you when he's in that context up on a stage, he can say the most just like politically incorrect, um, I, you know, things that you would never say out loud. And somehow it works and we can laugh because it's, we can let go within the pain of the human condition a little bit. I think it's very valuable. But if you were to take that same, those words on the subway, we, you know, you could cause a riot. You know, you could evoke violence. So whether something's funny or harmful, well, it all depends on the context. You know, and so we are all moving about in part of this world of interdependent relationships. For example, in relationship to my son, I'm a mother. In relationship to my teacher, I'm a student. Sometimes I'm a teacher, you know. Some, when I go to the dentist, I'm a patient. Like, who are we really? We can't really find one singular, permanent, independent um, identity. And yet, identity is very important. Motherhood is very important. It's powerful. So we're talking about a world of relationships that we are a part of. And so on one hand, you can't really say anything has truth from its own side because it's experienced differently. So here you get kind of the mystery and the awe. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't want to shut down around another human being because they're not limited to what we think about them. You know, thoughts are like a map. But what happens when you walk the territory? Like beings are, are dynamic and changing and they're responding to the world that they live in. And so this, this, uh, this, this idea that everything is arising and expresses, expressing itself and dissolving and changing this is, is what, how Buddhists look at Genesis, you know, it, it creation, which is happening all the time. Um, so this is what my teacher was actually pointing to me. And I think, you know, this, this notion of not one, not two, or not the same or not separate is also a way of speaking of interdependence because, you know, we think we are separate from the world, but how can we, where do we end and the world begin? Can you ever identify that place? We can't say we're the same or separate from the world because the world what we encounter just every moment is this kind of playful exchange of our inner and outer world. So we're influencing things and we're interrupting things and we're part of this great nature of interdependent relationships and it's influencing us. And we can't really say where we end and the world begins, but we also can't say we're the same. We're not the same or different, which leaves us in this very interesting place of understanding um, of having to relate to the world with tremendous care because everything leans, but also not being able to hold on to what we think the world is because if in a world in which everything leans, we can't know anything in a definitive way. It's much bigger than our labels and projections. Everything leans. It's, uh, I think we need to explicate that just a bit. So everything leans is another way of talking about it all depends. 
It's another mm-hmm. way of talking about the nature of uh, dependent origination because we can't remove ourselves from the nature of interdependent relationships. You know, we are part of it. Even if we block ourselves off in a cave, you know, we're still breathing in the air and sitting on the earth and we need food to sustain us and our thoughts and our emotions are arising interdependently from, you know, from causes and conditions in the past. So we're, we're just, we are part of the nature of contingent relationships or interdependent relationships. Um, and so this is a very different way of looking at ourselves. It has these two aspects to it. It has this aspect where we can't know anything in a definitive way. You know, we look at somebody and we think, oh, what a jerk or something. I don't know. But actually, what are the causes and conditions that gave rise to that? And why is our relationship the way it is? Are we really understanding what's going on? You know, so we have this tendency to think things are limited to how we think about them, which is a kind of what we call reification or fundamentalism. Like we lose our sense of awe. We think fundamentalism is for, you know, whatever, those people over there, but actually our inability to not shut down around an object is is fundamentalism. Yep. Yep. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, no, as I read through that part, I was like, Jeez, I'm a fundamentalist. This yeah, is terrible. Fundamentalist. My God, yeah. I mean, yeah. but attaching that word to what I referred to it in maybe a little bit different way was yeah. unusual, to say the least. Yeah. Um, my favorite person in the whole world is Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche these days. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I got to that. Uh, please just tell the story of meeting him it is so uh wonderful and i mean and maybe my attachment is involved there as we're talking about right now but with this kind of being i haven't met anybody who met him that didn't gaho you know divine presence is the only word i know to call these things yeah so extraordinary um well i was you know very young so it was just when i met uh um, and it's, it's kind of was a very tender time uh, for Digo Kongkrumji, who is, that's his root teacher, his main teacher of his life, is great, um, you know, who he really focused his devotion on and loved like a father, really. Yeah. And uh, so when I met Digo Kongkrumji, actually, he used to be a monk and um, he wasn't a monk when I met him, but he had just recently given up his ropes. And that is very a radical and difficult thing, I think, uh, to do. Um, and Wait, he, uh, you're, you're talking about Kongju, right? He got Kongju, yes, he yeah. So he did give up his, I, I wasn't aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a monk, you know, before I met him, but he wasn't a monk when I met him. Mm. Anyways, so he had not seen his teacher yet. <laughs> and uh, so his teacher had not seen him without his robes, which is a big, you know, it's a big uh, shift um, in the re- I don't, probably not in the relationship. She had a very big mind. But anyways, uh, as he was introducing me, you know, uh, like in that he had, wasn't wearing robes and then he was bringing in this Western girl. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but he was so sweetly and carefully uh, introducing me to him. But anyways, I was uh, very excited to meet him because I'd heard so much about him. And, you know, I, I had in my mind, I saw a picture, but I had in my mind this image of like this wise old man, you know, like with the glasses and the beard who 
knew everything about everything. And what, what really has stayed with me uh, throughout all of these years is that uh, he was in a constant state of awe like almost like a child he was amazed at everything i think he was amazed because he was looking at the nature unobstructed how things are how they arise but that you can't find them this gets back to dependent origination in a way because when you look deeply into dependent origination you're looking for something that's singular permanent something that's there that you can grasp onto and you can't find it and yet things are arising interdependently from the nature so they say like a dream like a rainbow like a magical display this is what uh what living and dying are meant to be how they're meant to be understood the great nagarjuna said that so it's like a vivid and apparent but but unfindable when you really look you know and so i think he saw the world this way and it was very palpable for me i thought he is in a state of awe he is fresh and and enjoying everything and not blocking or rejecting anything and i thought i can this is a path i want to be on <laughs> i was very attracted uh to his the beauty of who he was and always asking questions constantly interested in everything really beautiful mm. i never did uh, meet him to my chagrin now, <laughs> but yeah. after what, uh, what I've gotten, I can't, I'm not allowed to say anything like that. Uh, but, uh, but in, in the last I don't know, 10, 15 years, I, I just have felt so um, close in a, in a funny way. You can be close to s this kind of a being, you know, you can meet them that way. Yeah. Yeah, I would, totally. I wouldn't underplay that at all. <laughs> no, I don't. And, you know, I don't also because I see what happens with Neem Karoli Baba and all these people yeah. post leaving that body um, are as connected as me, Ramdas, Krishnas, or anybody. I mean, so I, I know the validity of it, and that's why it's uh, delightful, really. Yeah. yeah. Go, Kenzie. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I just, uh, we had a retreat. We do retreats here in Ojai, where we are now. And uh, Lama Suridas, I'm not sure, sure if you know. I know him. Say yeah. hi. <laughs> yeah. So he came, and uh, the teachings were around devotion and the guru. And of course, I mean, this man has had the, the amount of of siddhas, which we call in India, gone beyond Karmapas 16th and Dilgo Kensi, that level of Ninkaroli Baba. Uh, he was with his teacher, Ngoshal Ken Rinpoche, was yeah. an amazing teacher. Yeah, Tolku Urgian, right? That's just so, uh, so anyhow, we joke around uh, a lot around that. But, uh, a, you know, a lot of what we do is the intersection of Buddhist wisdom and, and bhakti, basically. Mm -hmm. Which yeah. is what we were giving from, given from Ninkaroli Baba, and and so many of us have gravitated to you know starting with Vipassana to uh, Tibetan Buddhism, of course, and you know uh, a number of them. Um, but what this uh, so this is to be an extension of my whole dialogue with uh, Surya Das. Um, now in this book, the the core of it, I mean, what's called the logic of faith, okay, faith and grace. Okay, so um, let's let's start with uh, grace and your interpretation of grace, and we'll see what my projections are if they meet up with yours. 
Yeah. So you want me to explain grace? Yeah. Yeah. To you. Yeah. So, you know, when I was young, I didn't, I just experienced it and I just really noticed it. Um, but as I began to study after my teacher made that gesture, that what we call mudra, I, I began to see that it has a lot to do with the, the nature of dependent origination, uh, the fact that everything leans, uh, and so I began to look at actually how you how one poises one's mind uh, changes how one sees the world. So in our tradition, we say um, the, the mind that is able to see things without impediment, that sees things directly, without confusion, we call that prajna. That's a mind that's not grasping or rejecting. It's not caught in belief or doubt. Okay, so what is this place beyond belief and doubt or grasping and rejecting? We would call it the middle way, maybe, but that's a place of awe, a place of humility, a place of like an open question. So this is the quality of mind that's able to see its object without mistake. So we have words for that in this tradition. I mean, I don't know if you want me to introduce and get into it too deeply. Sometimes we use the word emptiness. That's a hard word. But what it means is it's free of being um, confined as some singular, permanent, independent thing. Why? Well, because it all depends. <laughs> like there's nothing that you, this is a hard topic. I just want to. Yeah, and we've been going through it too. We, we've had, we had a whole retreat with, uh, who was there? Robert Thurman and. Oh, uh, wonderful. Um, Roshi Halifax, uh, I, I think, was it Roshi? Anyhow, we have gone through this, uh, and especially with Ramdas and and the Buddhists, because they're always driving back and forth around all of this stuff. But um, emptiness, empty of that small I, mm -hmm. is is to me a good way of approaching it, just because that's so easy to understand. Yeah, you can right? see the self-interested. Um, entity that we identify with, empty mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and in our tradition, of course, that again, I, I've mentioned it before, but um, and and it's the, the bodhisattva vow, basically. It's the mm -hmm. same thing. It's just uh, the willingness to give up your uh, uh, projections, attachments, pat give up everything that you are used to in order to serve somebody else, which yeah. uh, which is this movie, Becoming Nobody. That's what Becoming Nobody is. Becoming yeah. Nobody is basically becoming empty of that which we are so commonly associate who we are with. Yeah. Do, let me just say one thing. Yeah. When we talk about emptiness, we're really talking about seeing realistically how the nature is. Mm. So it's not the subjective mind. It's the object. It's the 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 object or the objective world that we encounter. So em the mind that is able to perceive emptiness is prajna. That what we're perceiving, we talk about the nature is empty. So it's only the mind that doesn't grasp and reject what it encounters. Okay, so when I say object, it could be the external world, it could be the internal world of thoughts and emotions, or it could be the mind itself, because when we're asked to think of the mind, the mind becomes an object of our subjective perception. So emptiness is a way of talking about the nature of things. 
And so when the mind is not grasping or rejecting, when it's in a state of awe, and again, you can evoke the image of Dilgo Kenzerimche in that, mm. it, it, is, it is not reifying. It's not shutting down around what it perceives. There's this incredible openness. So emptiness is not nothing. Emptiness is means it's because everything is leaning. So we can say that I don't, I think it's a, it's a bad translation to say there's no self. In here, we're not saying there's no self and we're not saying there is self. We're saying that the self can't, is not a singular, permanent or independent thing. I'm trying to be really accurate here. Is you, the language can get very vague around this. It's like we can't find a singular I because who we are, it all depends on the context. And we're, it's, we're not permanent. We're not singular. And we're, we're part of the nature of dependent relationships. So we're not a singular, permanent, or independent I. We are empty of those uh, uh, characteristics. But we're not nothing either. We're not, these are two extreme ways of seeing. That's why this is called the middle way, beyond the extremes of seeing is or is not. <laughs> not one and not two also. Yeah. I, you know, this is a very, this is a very specific, uh, this, the tradition of uh, the middle way teachings are very specific in the way they talk about emptiness. Very. Mm. Yeah. And again, how, I, I mean, yeah, we don't want to get too far into the complexities yeah. of that. Uh, but back to grace, because uh, mm -hmm. you also say in spiritual context, we think of grace as something that is bestowed upon us. And somebody asked you once, is grace something bestowed on us from the outside, from a divine presence? Or is it something inherent within the mind itself? What's the role of grace or divinity in non-theistic tradition of Buddhism? So... Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, I hear the what you're saying in this book is so. Um, it's so crystal-like in its clarity of the reality that, uh, and you you tie faith and grace together very much so as an active verb rather than a noun. Uh, and I, I really appreciated everything of it throughout. And this runs as a thread throughout the, the book. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> no, it does. It does. Because it made me think a lot. And, I, I, and this idea that grace coming from outside as a happening that creates different causes and conditions or different conditions, uh, I have to say... I think that's going on at the same time as everything, as how you have described it in this book. Uh, and uh, it made me think of, of, of much of what, you're, of what you're saying in this book, that we have no idea, of course, what reality is. It's, and, and because of just the projections and, and, the, and how we've been developed over our lifetime, and the patterns that we that we are have engendered that we really believe in strongly, yeah. and the 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 work towards uh, unleavening that bread, shall we say, yeah. is is what this is all about, and that is the nature of grace. 
Yeah. Right? Thank you. Am that I... said it very well. Yeah. You said it perfectly. And, you know, just maybe to, as a way to tie some things together that you were been, you've been asking me, this gesture of not one, not two, that my teacher was holding. Can you feet. hold your hand up further? So oh, that am I being videotaped? I didn't even know. Yeah, I, you I, are. <laughs> audio. Well, <laughs> lucky I don't look too bad. No, no you look great. You're <laughs> okay. fine. So this, I'm glad this makes it easier. So yeah. this not one, not two um, is an expression of really grace because what it's saying is, you know, grace doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's inspired by something that you um, evokes it from the outsides, but you're also your ability to appreciate um, and value qualities that you see in others or something, uh, a teaching or whatever you encounter um, is also part of the equation of grace. So you can't really separate the, the subject and the object. They're not one or two. Um, and I often think with uh, my teacher too, I, I feel a sense of grace. I know you do because the bhakti tradition, the, the tradition of devotion that we are a part of um, is about that evoking grace, you know, also getting feedback, but also evoking grace. Um, and so I often think, well, you know, this devotion is really not for the teacher, it's for the student, you know, because the, the, it's to awaken that state of awe or mm. that, that humility that beautiful quality that we have when we're in healthy relationship to the world we encounter so i'm thinking you know grace is a way to describe what it means to have a healthy relationship continuously with the world we encounter also with our thoughts and our emotions and what we call our inner life mm. through meditation so uh, this is something Sorry, everybody out there. You've heard this story more than well. If you go to Krishnadas concerts, he tells the same damn stories every night. But they're always okay? good, <laughs> and they're always good. Yeah, but this is a Krishnadas story, uh, and it has to do exactly with what we're talking about, Elizabeth. Uh, he was with uh, Maharaji actually in Mumbai um, back in that day when we were with him, and uh, he was with an Indian devotee. And he's just sitting there and he just turns to Krishnas and he says, courage is very important. Something like courage. The Indian man next to him goes, but Maharaji, this is, a, it's all guru's grace. What do you need? Courage? No good. It's all. And he looked at Krishnas and he did that thing that he did. He pointed his finger and he goes, courage is a very big thing. Save Krishnas for the rest of his life to this moment, I'm sure, that whenever, you know, stuff comes up that, that uh, is suffering and what we all deal with uh, more than occasionally, that comes into him. And there's a place, to me, it's what, it's the, it's the place where how you're describing grace and how I des might describe it or have described it according to bhakti tradition mm -hmm. come together because mm -hmm. that dance that happened between he and Maharaji formed something that is now installed <laughs> in the system and he automatically is um, awareness is happening as he goes through whatever that includes this concept, 
which is now beyond a concept, which is a, a reality that he's been working with. Uh, we yeah. all have for many, many, many years. Yeah, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful story and example. It, it, it reminds me, luckily now we're on video, so because I, I don't know, somehow I always have a lot of hand gestures. <laughs> in, in the Tibetan Vajrayana tradition, or the, the, I should say Buddhist Vajrayana, Indian Vajrayana as well, uh, they say that the, the, te- the relationship of the teacher and student is like the hook in the ring, like that. Mm. The student doesn't create the ring which I think is a sense of awe and openness and humility and like a longing to give up the causes and conditions for suffering, um, you know, selfishness and all these qualities. Uh, if, the, if the student is to develop that, then the teacher can hook the ring, you know? Uh, so that's kind of the relationship that they have. A interdepend- it's an interdependent relationship. It's, a, it's an agreement in some way, a very powerful agreement, um, I think. So uh, that what you, the story you just told reminds me of the hook in the ring. Mm, the hook in the ring. Okay, let's talk about. Um, so we talked about grace a little bit. That's now faith. Okay, and you call it uh, faithing, um, yeah. and you quote Saint Bonaventure. Take care that you don't reach conclusions, so that you can understand the incomprehensible. Right? I like that. Yeah, it's fabulous. And you go, you talk, you say, uh, faith implies that there's something we don't know. If we already knew, we wouldn't need faith in the first place. <laughs> in the first place, that's like a Jewish comic, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of sounds like that. <laughs> yeah, but why don't you expand on that one? <laughs> okay. Um, hmm. I guess, I, yeah, I just, uh, I, it was interesting because I, I noticed in my life I had a lot of faith uh, in certain ways, and then I sometimes hit up against some difficulties with the term faith. So I really wanted to explore it. So I do really ask myself, what is faith actually? Faith can be many things, you know. And I looked it up in the Oxford English Dictionary. I saw religion and dogma and fundamentalism and indoctrination. And then I saw confidence, conviction, and spiritual insight. Like those are such uh, opposing ideas. Um, and I sometimes felt, um, you know, people say like, you should have faith, but sometimes you don't, you don't, I mean, there's a lot of reasons not to have faith in objects or people, you know? I mean, that's, that was an interesting dilemma for me. I really started to explore. Um, it's like you have faith in the church until somebody does something that, <laughs> it doesn't match the way you think it should be. I mean, even with our teachers, this is a very challenging thing. Like, how do you have devotion or faith in a teacher? What are the conditions you place on that? What do you, what do you expect a perfect teacher to look like? You know, these are really big questions to grapple with. Uh, and people are grappling with these questions. And good, I think we need to look deeply at, like, also what our expectations are. And it's a very, uh, it's a tough one. And then other people think faith is for, uh, you know, if you don't have faith, you'll go to hell or, you know, there's all these things. So I started to look into it. Um, and I just saw that faith was something about, it had something to do with the human condition. Because if everything is leaning, we don't know what's going to happen next. We can't know anything in a determinate way. People are not just one way. You know, I often, because of the studies that I've done, I've often thought that, um, 
you know, the greatest respect we could have for anyone or anything is not to think we know who or what, you know, who they are. You know, that's like we shut down and reify the object. Then our mind is closed and we can't experience the, the, the kind of dynamic, beautiful, expressive, sometimes painful nature of how things are. It's the state of our union right now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how can we bear witness? You know, how can we include? Um, how can we how can we not shut down around the object? Again, we're talking about prajna or wisdom. Prajna means accurately discerning things. That means how can you see without mistake if that's the mind that doesn't shut down around its object, which means the mind has to be quite humble and open. And so that's what I talked about is faithing. And interestingly, I read Sharon's book. We talked taught mm. together last year, and we have this thing in common that we're both really intrigued. And we have a deep kind of connection to this word faith. And actually, I didn't read her book. I listened to her audiobook in which she read it so beautifully mm. and utterly touching and i recommend it to everyone and uh, she uses to faith she also made it a verb uh, wow you're so cool great uh, <laughs> so, uh, so we both reached the same kind of conclusion in terms of what that meant to us mm. you know? um and that was very interesting yeah you're lucky you both didn't get excommunicated okay for talking about <laughs> faith and grace, geez. Who would excommunicate, like the Buddhist community, you mean? Yeah, or somebody, I don't know, the Buddhist Pope, that there must be somebody. <laughs> a lot of people don't like you to use that word. And I know, I am not kidding. We have, to. we have to reconsider it. We have mm. to reconsider it. We can't, you know, this uh, Sam Harris who wrote, uh, mm -hmm. what did he say? Something of, wait, faith, the end of faith, because he thinks. The end of faith, yeah. Yeah, it's like, People use, you know, to kill people, like terrorists. Yeah. Terrorism uh, is in the name of faith. But, but we can't just, dis that people associate terrorism with faith gives us something to look at. But to completely dismiss an idea, like we're dismissing, you know, so much uh, richness from all these great spiritual traditions. And we're, we're missing something about the human condition. Like this one great uh, teacher, Tinley Noboom, she said, cows have faith in grass. Mm, uh, you expect a lama to say, cows have faith in grass. What he's saying is we live in a world in which we depend and there's no way around it. Therefore, we have to have faith. We have to faith, as Karen says. Mm, as yeah. Sharon says, we have to have yeah. faith. I love that. Yeah. You know. Did you think so? mm. It's a human question, this faith yeah. thing. But to me, it starts with trust. Actually, when I talk to people, um, I've been going around talking or taking questions and talking about the movie as it's been showing around the country. Um, I bring up trust. And also in Maui, uh, when we do these uh, retreats, to me, the, the, the first the trust, I, I have even a hard time with, not really. I mean, I say that, but it's not true but i think there's so much more trust in the word trust than there is in the word faith because of the re religious connotations that faith the bad ones that it has for us especially in the west yeah that's why all you know of our buddhist friends you know i mean it's one reason where it's a problem because it's a problem for many people uh who go to the east and and take uh, teachings there and 
but uh, but trust that's way easier we we all want to have trust in yeah. something in someone in ourselves etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh and at uh at some point it it turns into what sharon calls bright faith oh yeah the three kinds of faith yeah yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. Uh, but uh i mean i put it in really um basic terms i met ramdas and this is what I say about what's becoming nobody. Becoming nobody is when I first met Ramdas, and he just shed his Richard Alpertness, his Ramdasness, and it was just me, right? Total service to what was the best thing that he could provide for me in the moment, which was loving attention, basically. Mm -hmm. And I trusted that. I mean, I trusted him immediately, and that trust led me to something um actually it led me to the same thing that same moment only it had a continuum because of the being that i was hanging out with uh but yeah trust uh, i always whenever faith comes up i always like to check in with people around just trust yeah it's, it's such an interesting uh idea in word in you know what I think, well, what are we really trusting in? Because sometimes we're trusting in our teacher uh, to make us feel comfortable or make us feel good, or we have an idea of who our teacher should be. That becomes a problematic because we're, we're projecting something onto the teacher and then we're, expe we're, we're expecting to trust that. It's like leaning up against somebody like this and saying, okay, I'm depending on you, don't move. You know, sometimes there's a lot of problems that happen with this kind of trust. But then I realize, like, I've thought about that a lot, you know, because, of course, I've, I trust my teachers. It's not it's not always been easy, but I've committed to that because I understand that this process of waking up. Absolutely. I need a teacher for that. And so there's this agreement. So it's not like an agreement that the teacher should be a way that will make me always feel comfortable. But there's an agreement that I also am willing to let go. See, this comes the hook and ring again. You know, I'm willing to be humble. I, I like living there. You know, I want to be a student. You know, we think the teacher is, we all revere our teachers so much and for good reason. But the student is also divine if the student is the ring, you know. So I always think, you know, nowadays a lot of the trust issues I think people have around teachers is that they haven't understood what it means to be a student, too. And that's very powerful. And it's, it's not, it's a strong position. It's a divine, it's when it's open and humble in the way that we're talking about. And a, and a great description of that, by the way, um, that I ever heard, that between a teacher and a student, a guru, disciple, whatever, bhakta, uh, comes from Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember which book, uh, spiritual materialism, maybe, yeah, which is it doesn't matter what book you're They're all good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so yeah, I love that. The what, hook and the ring. Did he use the hook and the ring too? No. What did Trump from she say? Which one? Just, uh, well, he talked about this is not a static relationship sitting there waiting for something to happen or in any way has it anything to do with that it is a 
relationship. There is action and activity from the student as well as the teacher that um, they come together. And it's, it's, it's what we've been, you've been talking about here in this uh, yeah. podcast earlier. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, of course, when I was with Neem Karoli Baba, the, it was, uh, it was good that I was young, but too bad <laughs> to be so naive. My God. It takes a but, long time. <laughs> yeah. But it it is also true that I can look back and recognize the things that were happening beyond my mind that were actions that were happening that produced results that then, you know, fruition happened from karma, yeah. from karma. Yeah. Yeah. So, so fortunate. So fortunate. Yeah. Such a wealth of, uh, wealth of experience in that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very important thing, and trust is at is at the heart of it, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. But then there can't be any trust in an uh, external. That has to be trust inside. Yeah. So you've got to connect like with. <laughs> yeah, like that. That's it. You know, That's it. Yeah. No, for sure. Let me say one thing. I yeah. find this one interesting. Like when the guru is up here and the student is down here. Yeah. You know, because this this happens. There's a little problem with that sometimes. It's better it's like this. But that's not saying it's all democratic and the student has what the teacher has. No. How can that be? We have to rely on the teacher for that. But sometimes I think when people look, mistakenly look at the teacher up here, then it's like the lazy way. Like they don't have to do the work that it requires to wake up. And I know Trung Prabhupada kind of talked about that. So then they deify the teacher and hold the teacher in such a static place. And when this teacher does, does something they don't understand, then they, the teacher is demonized, you know, or, or else they have to hold on in a fundamentalist kind of way. So therefore, I, this hand gesture is, a, or this hand gesture, you know, the hook in the ring is, those are, again, I guess we keep coming back to that somehow. Mm, yeah. That's what keeps coming up, right? Yeah, absolutely. But um, I have, I will, I have to admit something, though. Okay. I really do because uh, we always look at at all of our Buddhist friends. I mean, you know, look at what Jack has accomplished and Sharon and Joe, in particular, because we're so close to them. I mean, they're just phenomenal, and we're we consider ourselves as. Uh, from the bhakti tradition, complete wastrels. Even Maharaji said, these people, they do five-limb yoga, gossiping, eating, drinking, smoking, walking aimlessly about. This is what we were good at, right? So we weren't <laughs> very good at anything, okay? And I mean, yes, we did all the courses and everything, and I'm sure, you know, we all have practices, I'm sure, but we don't hold a candle to our Buddhist friends, what we do have <laughs> in terms of practice, but what we do have is that blanket, and we've all held on to that blanket. And um, although Roshi Joan has personally frowned on me for not feeling like I need to get out of the subject-object thing and uh, move into a Zen, uh, that blanket is meaningful. I don't know totally what it means, and I am sure that... Uh, I am so fraught with all sorts of, of uh, uh, what boy, you have a word for it in this book that was so great. Oh, God, I got to find it. It's like, um, I'm going to find this thing. Okay. It's something to do with wisdom, 
completely uh, outside of any kind of reality. You are so lost. <laughs> God. Okay, we're going to, oh, no, Prajna Aparada. Okay, crimes against wisdom. I, oh, yeah. oh my God, that was such a great phrase. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. So I may be committing crimes against wisdom uh, in terms of all this, but uh, uh, yeah, I there's that. I don't know what that represents. If it's if it's really um, what we're you know if it's this you know if it's the hat maybe. When you, say, when you say blanket, you mean your guru. I mean his blanket, yeah, my guru's blanket, not not the you know, the real the thing you know that I can still hold on to as soon as I close my eyes if I want, you know, yeah. um, but uh, metaphorically, of course, meaning that I know that he is relentlessly going to do nothing, but uh, that's all he came here for for anybody who's associated with him is to relentlessly get them free of. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that working on you? Absolutely. Then you're hook and ring. And hook and ring is non-dual because it's not one or not two. You can, I, I, I you know, Joan Halifax, we can, Joan Halifax and I, maybe yeah, you confer. Because <laughs> we're interested in similar. Uh, uh, she's wonderful, wonderful. I've known her for a long, since I was young, actually. Oh, but really? I, yeah, but I, I think, uh, I think you are doing hook and ring. And I think it's a beautiful, the path of bhakti is mm. Devotion for us, it's like everything is simple. You know, if you can just be the ring, mm. it, it's so powerful. Mm. I, I I wouldn't worry about it if that's what you're doing. No, I'm not. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun to think about and talk about. I'll tell you, yeah, uh, most especially because people really want to know what is this particular path of bhakti, and it can be. Uh, Oftentimes, it can be exactly that, a hierarchical thing. And I'm going to be here and you're going to do something for me. Um, and it's, it's all you're doing. You know, all of those kinds of terms, which on the highest level are all true, uh, the level where there is no duality, because this being was not in duality. I mean, that was the most you know, yeah. mind-blowing thing as soon as sitting there. You know, I mean, and, or being with Dilgo Kensi, same kind of, a, same exact, they're all in this, there's only one thing going on. That's what he used to say. There's this one thing right. going on. Sub That's right. You That's know, right. So, so yeah. very true. And it's, it's, it's an interesting time to talk about the guru because this is a path wrought with danger sometimes in our culture right now. And Oh, yeah. No, terrible. I mean, I just, yeah, very difficult. Very difficult. But we just and, keep the conversation going, right? Yeah, because yeah, we exactly. can't afford to not have teachers. I always say, without teachers, there's no students, and without students, there's no curiosity and awe and you know humility. And these are the best qualities of the mind. You know, mm. we can't do away we, with things that make us uncomfortable. We need to look into it deeply. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're at the end, but I, I gotta quote you. Okay. Because, I mean, as I said, I mean, you know, I have a book full of post-it notes. Oh. <laughs> okay. People like, oh, God, can I read this book? But what is all this stuff that you got in there? <laughs> Whether we make a conscious choice to follow a lineage of wisdom or not, it has always been our natural inclination to bend toward well-being. 
Right. Nobody can argue with that statement. And then you might say that you've always been searching for grace. Mm, I think so. That's it. I, I'm totally, I'm one billion percent with you. Uh, everybody I see and everybody involved with everything that we do and all of our friends on, on Buddhist path, it is nothing less than that. And once, and once one realizes that, then so much more spaciousness can come into one's life, right? Yeah, absolutely, hundred mm. percent. Yeah, I really, Raghu, I really appreciate you reading it so carefully, and um, I, I really appreciate your inquiry just into grace and faith, and um, also mm. for just calling me out of the blue. Yeah, have uh, a conversation so, which I've enjoyed so much. Oh uh, yeah, no, it's fantastic, Elizabeth. Um, so everybody, come. Uh, we're going to turn you on to the, Elizabeth's book, which is did I even say it's the Logic of Faith, a Buddhist approach to finding creativity, certainty, yeah, certainty, yeah, and creativity beyond belief and doubt. <laughs> Yeah. That reminds us. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, certainty, yeah. So we'll have that and uh, m a number of the other connections that came up in the podcast, certainly. And uh, you can find go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and go to Mind Rolling and look at the show notes. And you'll be able to see Elizabeth and I on YouTube. Okay? Oh, great. Yeah. Will you send me the link? I will. I absolutely will. Cool. See you all next week. <laughs>